This is Me, Myself and Disaster, the show all about disasters with a human focus. From hurricanes to humanitarian issues, we journey across fault lines to explore trends in disaster preparedness, response and recovery and understand how our guests became involved in disasters. Over to you, Disaster Brothers, Josh and Andrew. And welcome back for another episode of Me, Myself and Disaster, the show where we talk all things disaster with a human focus. Josh, we've talked a lot on the show about the Black Summer bushfires. They were a significant disaster that will remain in the memories of those affected forever. Living through an event like that is not easy. Today on the show, we're speaking to a community leader who came so close to losing his own house and continues to work as part of the broader community recovery effort. We're here recording live in Martin Place in Sydney with the Honourable Andrew Constance. He's the New South Wales Minister for Transport and Roads and the member for Bega. We're going to talk about the ongoing bushfire recovery effort on the New South Wales South Coast, mental health, leadership during disasters, politics, and what we need to be doing today to prepare communities for the disasters of tomorrow. Let's chat with Andrew Constance on Me, Myself and Disaster. Minister Andrew Constance, thanks for joining us on Me, Myself and Disaster. Thanks for having me, guys. I mean, this is um, obviously incredibly important to so many people, so it's, it's great to be able to help out. And I think that's where we probably want to start today. Um, you've got a really interesting story around um, disasters and how that affected your life. So I think it'd be really good if we could kind of set the scene today and take some of our listeners. Obviously, a lot of, we've got a lot of listeners from Australia who are very aware of what we went through uh, in Black Summer, but also got some international um, uh, people that listen to this podcast. And I thought it'd be really good if you could just take us back um, to New Year's Eve 2019, set the scene for us, what it was like for, for yourself um, what did you experience? What happened? What did that day bring for you? Um, well, I mean, look, to sort of, I guess, contextualise it better, um, the 26th of November was when our wildfire started. Uh, we had, throughout the course of uh, those five weeks before it reached um, where I live, just this ongoing threat of uh, a very large wildfire just burning north and south, depending on which way the wind blew. Yep. And then on occasion, uh, it would find its way to the ocean. Um, and, you know, I'm talking about a, a ridge line, of course, being, the, in essence, the the main escarpment. Yep. Um, and, it, you know, look, it, it burnt uh, for the best part of five weeks before um, it turned really nasty on New Year's Eve. Um, it took a run that day maybe 30, 40 k's. I could see it first up at about 3 a.m. in the morning. Um, And it was big and it was ugly and no humidity in the air. um, The car gauge, as I drove into where my in-laws lived, um, hit about 33. Um, And um, over the course of the next few hours, it it took hold. And um, the satellite imagery, which is on the Malua Bay Rural Fire Service uh, website, is just inexplicable. Um, and I, to this moment, uh, in and around Malua Bay, I know we lost a lot of lives that day, but um, where I live, I, I don't know how there were, wasn't hundreds killed. Mm. Uh, and I, I put it down to um, obviously the threat of the fire being there for five weeks beforehand and everyone being terrified and wondering what was going to happen. Yeah. 
It sounds like an incredibly tough experience um, for your community and, and for you personally. And Josh and I have been on the ground for a number of disasters. Most recently, uh, we went to uh, Western Australia for Cyclone Saroja, um, and hundreds of people have been displaced from their houses there. These situations challenge us, but how do we overcome the stigma of asking for help and what can we do to influence uh, positive change, do you think? Look, I mean, in that type of situation, it's all in. Um, the experience for some... Um, includes incredibly lonely because you your entire life goes before your eyes and you wonder you know you know you you know you're on edge it's not like just a flash where your life's in danger it's in danger for the entire event and when you're in that scenario with hundreds of others um and in my case i spent a lot of that day alone by myself but when i was down at the beach at the surf club what i saw was just people coming together and drawing a strength out of each other, which, to be honest with you, you don't think you have. Um, so it, it's, uh, you know, it's one in, all in. Um, I wish the hell we'd just, you know, work out how the hell to get out of the way of these things, to be honest, if we see them in the future. I wouldn't recommend putting a community or thousands of people through that again. I'd sooner just evacuate the entire area, let the houses burn, because, it, you know, the only thing that stopped it was the ocean. Mm-hmm. No fire truck or water bomber was going to stop it. And I think, is it really worth losing your life for? Probably Mm. not. In fact, definitely not. So, uh, look, for me, um, I saw an incredible humanity that day. Um, You know, just young blokes in surf life-saving gear, you know, quite literally carrying seniors onto the sand. Um, People just protecting their kids, their animals. And I, I think the thing about it is we're, we're probably – our inner strength is a lot stronger than we all think in those situations. Um, and, you know, I think what we've got to be able to do – I mean, yes, use technology as best we can because there's no doubt the text message that went out at 6am led a lot of people to go to the beach even though they were out in the open when the wildfire roared through Malua Bay. And the worst thing about it was it didn't come once, it came twice because the country in the – west and then suddenly hit it at about 11 o'clock so it, it really it was um it was two fire fronts not one and uh in on each occasion you, you can't breathe but what i saw was just people just making sure they were safe together i do worry when you see um you know people um you know just by themselves left trying to save a house i mean it's the end of the day you know, when you see a thousand homes burning down in your local community, it's um, everyone's got to rebuild together, and that's been yep. part of it. How is the community going now, and and how are you personally going in your recovery from that bushfire? Uh, to be honest, um, I'm still seeing a psychologist for post traumatic stress. Um, so a lot of nights where you wake up at three a.m. and you're still thinking about that day. I want to get it out of my head. Mm. Um, I've got mates who one bloke in particular like. Um, he ended up 30 k's inland in a very deep sort of coastal range area. And he went up there by himself as an RFS volunteer and he, I mean, he can't sleep. Hmm. So it, you've got those type of examples and you've got traumatised teenagers and kids. Um, and, you know, Australia doesn't do trauma well. We don't do mental health well. And... Um, Mental health support can come in various forms. It can come in the form of just even a community rally, rallying together. I mean, you know, only yesterday 
I drove past my local area and local beach and, you know, one of the things that was reformed after the fires was the local board riders club and, you know, all the kids were exposed to the fires and their parents, they're actually now running the sort of monthly surf comp. Mm. And that, you know, that's a form of, if you think about it, that's a form of trauma support. It's about yeah. coming together. We're, we we lost so much momentum because of COVID. We're starting to get our mojo back in terms of trying to rebuild the community spirit after such a devastating event. And COVID just, you know, stripped of, stripped us of volunteers, stripped us of blaze aid, um, stripped us of disaster um, relief Australia, all of these organisations who just had all these volunteers turn up. They all had to go home. So it, yeah, it was it was shocking and. You know, I do worry because I think there has been a delayed response in terms of this because, you know, whenever someone might see a burn pile on a property or, you know, I know of people who just can't even look inside a fireplace mm. without it just being a trigger. So yeah. we've got to look at the triggers for the years ahead. Yeah. Um, the other big devastating thing for us, uh, because a lot of the forest canopy was lost in the fires, um, what it's done in terms of the vegetation and the regrowth is quite profound. So we've now got not only, I guess, the, you know, the noxious weeds coming back, but the black wattle is growing at such a rate, like it's double, the, double my height. Yeah. And that's inside um, 18 months. Wow. And that stuff is oily, it's nasty, and it'll, it'll dry out again and it'll burn. So we're going to end up with some pretty ordinary sort of low-level surface fires in the years ahead because this stuff's come back. So mentally everyone's looking at this stuff yeah. and just going... Holy hell. Mm. It's not going to be 40, 50 years before we see a very big blaze again. It'll be potentially, you know, five, seven, ten years, you know. Yeah. So, look, I think it's – for me, I mean, you've got, to, you've got to give people hope and you've got to make sure that there's change. And um, at the moment I'm worrying that, you know, change is slipping through our fingertips at the moment because everyone's moved on and – bureaucracies move on and governments move on and, you know, um, for some, you know, people will never ever get over what we saw. Mm. I think it's a really interesting um, point around having those constant triggers. You know, every day you go take the kids to school or, you know, you drive down the shops to get some milk, having some of those things to trigger you. But I think part of that conversation at the start there, I got this common theme of community. And I know it was a big thing for yourself afterwards. Yeah. You know, really big on that community front. You know, we need to raise awareness around what my community is going through. What has this fire done, I guess, for yourself in terms of your view of, um, you know, what, what, what does community mean to you now in terms of disaster recovery? Like what do you see the role of community um, in the future in the, in this recovery space? I like that. Some of the bravest people that day were people who weren't necessarily involved in a rescue organisation. Or uh, so, community to me, um, when you're facing such an event, um, it's defined at a very different level. Mm. Um, it's not sort of run in the mill. You know, you're part of a community. You know, you get involved. Um, in these circumstances, you don't have an option. Yeah, because you either but quite frankly, perish or survive. Yeah. Um, and even with the mental health stuff post-fires, I mean, it is very much still about perishing or survival. So there was an incredible unification. It was like unity and sort of survival and unity and recovery. Yeah. Um, you know, we had 
neighbours who hadn't spoken for 20 years over wow. the back fence having arguments who, you know, ended up embracing each other. And I've got a couple of mates down at Cabago who normally go and fight with greenies and now everyone was <laughs> like, everyone's getting on. So, I mean, they, they all had to basically, um, you know, live on a showground together and get through it. So mm. it, it, I think in many ways it took took the politics out of it, it took the issues out of it. It became very much about survival and recovery. And, you know, it, it's um, it's made for a kinder place. I think yeah. that's the, the upshot. I think community to me is about kindness and, um, you know, what you put into a community uh, in these circumstances is a hell of a lot back. Yeah. <laughs> so... You know, it, it wouldn't matter if it was Raj and local chemist at Malua Bay giving out free ventilins to kids who couldn't breathe through them. Just, you know, people supporting each other to be able to get them before a counsellor to deal with the trauma of it. There was a lot of that stuff go on. Um, and to this day, I mean, as we sit here, I mean, there's still people living in um, shipping containers and mm. some of those more remote areas, people are doing it, you know, pretty tough. When these big disasters happen, and it's been the same in other bushfires in Victoria, there's often that second disaster people call when everyone tries to donate as much aid as they can, well-meaning people wanting to help. How do they come and sort of spontaneously volunteer or just give heaps of stuff? And I've seen that in Western Australia, the mining industry recently. But how do you think to avoid that disaster? How do you think people outside the disaster area can best help somewhere like your area that's been impacted by these bushfires? Look, there's, there's incredibly kind and generous people who want to assist and you can't begrudge that Mm. Um, it was very obvious to me early on that we needed the army to be able to coordinate the logistics around that kindness Um, so I insisted that the army and the council were trying to grapple with it but it was better to just centralise at um, Mackay Park near Batemans Bay and Big Oval there and, and the army were able to receive those goods and then get them to places you know that needed it because for some it was incredibly overwhelming. I mean, I know there's examples where, you know, for instance, at, at Guorma, their local, uh, the locals and in particular Veronica Abbott, who just became this incredible community champion, just, you know, through through the local hall was able to coordinate the supplies and the relief. Mm. Um, but, uh, you know, I think one thing that governments can do well in those circumstances is make sure that with, you know, we quite literally had semi-trailer load after semi-trailer load turn up, got to the point where it's actually affecting small business and the local IGAs to be able to get back on yeah, their feet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you've got, to, you've got to be able to manage that, but you should never, ever um, show any sign of anything but gratitude for that kindness because that, you know, that mattered. Um, you know, we, we at home, for instance, we didn't have power for 17 days. Um, the mobile phones were stuffed because the towers melted and so it was a very isolating period and then we also had the highways cut off with the trees down all over them. So it, I think out of that, you've got to be able to better plan and, and mitigate against disasters by also thinking in advance of these disasters. How do you manage recovery? What can you do with the personnel that you do have available? Mm. And how, how can you coordinate so that it's easier on the community who are already going through enough without, you know, people having to go above and beyond um, you know, we had we had fire brigades where half the brigades lost their homes. Yeah, um, and um, you know, it's really hard to see. Mm. So shifting gears a little bit, then, um, and I think we're kind of going into this space now. You know, we talk a lot about after a bushfire about how do you, you know how do we rebuild the roads and how do we put the infrastructure back in. But I think something that's often forgotten about is the people. 
And I think that's something that we've seen from Black Summer. It's something that I think is becoming um, more of a first thought about people rather than infrastructure. But for yourself in your experience, what do you think we could do better in that space? How can we help people? How can we think about people first in recovery? Do you have any experiences from from what you've seen and, and what you've gone through? Yeah, I mean, New Year's Eve, uh, just gone this year, though. Um, local surf club just got to run back together again. Mm. Yeah, for the for the week or so after the uh, the Malua Bay event, um, Surf Club, God love them, you know, they put on um, you know bacon egg rolls and a cup of coffee. Um, people lost everything; was just able to gather together. Yeah, twelve months on, they put on some live music, did the bacon egg rolls, and it was it was quite a healing thing. So we've got to put into thoughts about healing. Yeah. Otherwise, uh, next time we see flames on a TV set. Um, or we get to experience it coming from the region, seeing smoke and fire again. It's going to be a mess. Yeah. You know, it, um, you know, people won't, you know, in some circumstances you can push someone to a limit, yeah. to an absolute point where they they will consider potentially self-harming or yeah. worse, suiciding. And, you know, with, um, you know, you, you've also got, you know, those who can be traumatised and go through incredible suffering and, I think we've got a plan for that. We're going to be thinking in advance of that. You know, I mean, I, I, I get so, excuse my French, pissed off when I see, you know, insurance company ads with fires bellowing in the background or TV ads or anything else because for some, mm. you know, they should be able to just turn the TV on and not see some insurer trying to push a product yeah. and have that trigger because mm. that's what happens. It, like until you go through it and experience it, then you don't actually understand what can go through someone's mind. Yeah. So, you know, you can see what's going to happen. Like we'll, we'll go through um, to the next drought um, and then, of course, it'll be back on again. Yeah. And, and that's where I think you've you, you got to plan ahead for that because too many people have been hurt from this event. There's people hurt in the Tartha fires who, you know, they only need to get a whiff of smoke and it, it just brings up all the memories of it. I think this is the really interesting thing. I think as we, I don't know what your thoughts on this are, but I think as we start to see these compounding and cascading events, you know, we're often seeing people, you know, thrust back into a response phase who are still going through that recovery phase. And I think that's going to be the really interesting thing for some of our communities, but especially the Black Summer because it was such a big effect on New South Wales. You've got such a large amount of people who were affected by that. You know, what does that actually look like? Does that actually change how we respond to future disasters? Or, you know, a lot of the conversations Andrew and I have been having, does that actually change how you warn and communicate with people during future disasters, understanding there might be, you know, triggers or PTSD issues that might actually, you know, where we'd normally go send out an emergency alert and we get X amount of percentage um, agreeing with that message and taking action, will we actually see change in that? Is there any... You know, how can we actually do that long-term recovery better? Have you got some thoughts about that? Like we've, we've got a lot of people um, who listen to this podcast who work for RFS and do those type of things. What do they need to be thinking about next time we go into a disaster to help people like your community? Um, I, look, I think um, I think mental health is everybody's responsibility, to be honest, because mm. you're not going to ever have enough counsellors or enough RFS brigade captains or, you know, local community nurses or doctors or, you know, like it, it's got to be something we all get through it together. Mm. Uh, country communities can do it well, but um, I think the awareness, I mean, there's no degree of bravado which can shelter anyone against this stuff. Like it doesn't matter how tough you think you are. 
Um, so I, my sense out of it is, um, you know, we've got to be all having the honest discussion about how we want to achieve it. Yeah. Um, you know, I, my observation is sometimes it's the simple things that can work, like getting a pool table into a hall at Narragunda, you know, so that they can get together on a Friday night and just look out for each other. They don't even need to sit there and talk about the fires. They just, mm. just you know, just seeing a face. Yeah. So I, I think there's a lot of, you know, people respond differently to pressures, but I think we've all got to be aware of it. Yeah. Um, fires will come again. Floods will come again. Yeah. Um, but I do, I do think there's a, um, there's definitely a, you know, there's a very real need for us to get better at it. And I think national and state and local government has have an obligation to provide that safety net. I think we can't. I think I think the mental health situation is so dire and hopeless. And mm-hmm. um, but uh, that means you've got to be able to broaden it out so that it's not just about a health system it's yeah. a it's a whole of community effort um and uh you know that means every community leader has a role to play in terms of making sure the well-being of their community is strong yeah i think that probably leads really nicely into into this next conversation um you've obviously had a lot of leadership roles in your career um and if my facts serve me right you were the youngest member of parliament um when elected in 2003 i don't know what i was thinking (laughs) (laughs) but i guess people think of disasters as this very cut and dry um situation people come in people go out um you know people come in with their fire trucks or ses comes in does what they need to do and then move out and and often forget around the aftermath that's that's left and I think we can all agree that disasters are inherently political um, and it's this real nexus between um, politics people community and how those all come into play so how do you how do you see emergency service um, members or people working disasters how can we better support politicians in these in this in this space and also how can politicians do you think better service um, the disaster sector um, I think your question's wrong I think it's about, about how can we support our volunteers better. Mm. Um, I know with um, the RFS, I mean, there's been such enormous pressure after this event. Yeah. It's pressure on during it, but afterwards. Um, you can quite literally see, you only need to look someone in the eyes to know what people saw. Mm. Um, and, I, you know, I think that in terms of the political system, I mean, I said at the time it was broken because I was so angry about um, the lack of empathy. Yeah. Um, I mean, everyone's doing their best to show they care. Um, but care can come in different forms. Mm. Um, so, you know, I think um, there is a real need for uh, the empathy um, to understand the human need in those types of situations. Um, you know, uh, I think people get it. I think, you know, political leadership gets it. I think the media get it. Um, but sometimes it's just forgotten and mm. that, that can really upset people. You know, we, we had such traumatised communities that uh, they, they quite literally, they were worried about where their next bottle of water was coming from. Yeah. Um, before they were worried about, you know, ultimately the pressures that can be brought to bear um, in terms of politics, um, which 
is why I felt at the time we, we couldn't really embark on a massive big debate about land clearing and land management practices or um, climate change or all those types of things because yep. community, when they're traumatised, it's not what matters. It's, it's about surviving it. Um, the last thing people are going to want to do is participate in some big debate about yep. hazard reduction, burning or climate change. It's, so we've got to be very more sensitive to that. There's a time and a place for those types of discussions and those debates, absolutely. So I think that's where the criticism in relation to politics comes into it. It's, mm. it's in the timing and the empathy around what you need to do. People want to have those debates and discussions. They can be wrong, but they, they want to have them in a very time-sensitive yeah. way. In terms of the bushfires, um, do you think that's changed your leadership style as a politician? And do you think um, the way you undertake your role has is, is changed as a result of your experience last year? Oh, I forget being a politician. It just changed me. <laughs> Seriously. Yeah. I mean, it... it it, um, yeah, you want to go and have an argument with, with someone or whatever, but, and, you know, the cut and thrust of it, but, um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's added to enormous pressures and uh, at a personal level within. Um, you know, you, in some ways you find your identity when you're in that situation and then it can be lost again because of the political process. So I, I do think that um, you, you've, you've got a... Um, yeah, yeah, I mean, it, it just changes you forever. It does. Um, and, and, you know, like I think, like the whole experience is, it seems like a decade ago, but it really isn't. Mm. So there's this, this surreal nature about it. Um, but, you know, I'm, I'm struggling. I'm really struggling at the moment because I don't, you know, when I go home, I've got to look at black stumps still, um, you know, I've got to look at uh, blocks which had homes with it. There's one guy who's obviously, I mean, he's still working on what he's, what he's doing, but the, the burnt structure of his place is still standing. Wow. So you look at it and you just go, geez, you know, he, he's doing it really tough. Um, so, you know, people lose so much in these types of events because they lose all their, their tangible memories. Um, they lose their belongings, they lose everything. Um, but you know, people people do get on and rebuild. And for eighty percent of people, it's 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 a reasonably okay process. But for others, it's you know years and years and years of indecision. That can be hard. Do you think it's possible to prepare politicians? I mean, as a local MP, this is going to happen um, at times, depending on where you live and and where you represent. But do you think there's a way we can better prepare politicians for this sort of experience as a community leader and, and what like how to how to operate in a disaster? Really, I've seen some pretty crooked things in my time, twenty years in Parliament, um, and there's no degree of preparation in that sense. But um, I do think. Um, in these circumstances, I mean, look, leadership, it's not something that can be taught. Um, you know, if you experience it and you're seeing those who you care about, those who support you and your community go through it, like it it just happens naturally. Um, so, I, you know, I think... In terms of politicians, I mean, if if they're mindful of putting themselves in the shoes of those that are in front of them, that's probably the best thing I can do in those circumstances. Mm. Um, and it, it doesn't matter your political persuasion. Uh, I mean, this is about your humanity. It's It's got nothing to do with politics. 
Um, so, yeah, look, I think the um, I think the political process um, in Australia works overwhelmingly really well, but um, we've got to get away from these pressures about you know politicians having to turn up and wave the flag and all those types of things. We at the end of the day, um, I'd seen everyone be focused on making sure the logistics is right. Mm. Um, particularly when people are isolated and cut off for weeks on end. Um, and we've just experienced the biggest global... It was been a major, major global event. And it, you know, the largest wildfire in the world's history that we've, we're aware of. Mm. Five and a half million hectares of our, our state burned. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, look, I think, you know, I, I you know, saw... I mean, for instance, Gladys was amazing. Um, you know, to have Gladys Berejiklian in, in a fire truck the next day, um, just embracing people, um, was amazing. Um, and, I mean, she said to me that morning when she arrived, I was like, we're going to do whatever we need to get out of this. And she was right, and we did, but um, we've got to be very mindful. It's just even, you know, they're still trying to issue bushfire grants, like, yeah. you know, 18 months on. It's like, bloody hell, you know. People are moving on, but yes, we do need the support, we do need the stimulus and we need the jobs and people are affected and people lost a lot. Um, so we've just got to be a little bit more sensitive to that. Charities, I was critical of the time because, again, um, you know, they, they're just, you know, two, three months into it, people were still not getting support. And they, uh, you know, there was such generosity, like it just... The way that it was managed um, from the some of the leaders in that sector, like it, there was just no sensitivity to what was really happening within the community. I seen us have a a one single sort of natural disaster relief fund and just put a couple of the locals in charge of how you might spend the money because you'll get better bang for your buck in terms of outcome. Mm, that's an idea. Yeah, so it's logical, isn't it? <laughs> People who actually live in the in the disaster zone knowing what's needed. And it wouldn't matter if it was a you know a case of a generator being attached to a showground or um, you know just some cash flow support for small business. Mm. Coming back to I guess that political side, how did you navigate those waters? Because I guess you yourself had a really <laughs> profound yeah. experience. But, you know, that team you're trying to work with has, has obviously not gone through that same experience. How, was that hard? Was that... They were just lucky the mobile phone tower had melted. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, there was one conversation I had with um, uh, the head of one of our energy companies. Mm. And it was 11 o'clock on the Saturday night after the fire had ripped through on the Tuesday. And what I saw in um, our community library with a whole bunch of... Uh, residents from an aged care and retirement village sleeping in chairs in 30-plus degree heat and these people hadn't even been able to bring a generator down to a, an evacuation centre which was holding 3,000 people. Mm. Oh, for goodness sake. I was so angry and, and unfortunately for him, the mobile phone did work in the centre of Batemans Bay at that stage. <laughs> and I, I mean, I ripped in. I, got, I didn't hold back because what I saw, and I've still got the photos on my phone. Mm was an absolute national embarrassment from that leader. Um, and it really annoyed me to think that there was generators sitting at Nowra mm. and it was one semi-trailer able to bring it in, an electrician to hook it up, and the RFS could have made sure those trees were out of the way to get that truck through. I yeah. mean, for God's sake. Mm. You know, so it wasn't perfect. Um, and a lot of lessons for next time. Um, and that's why we've got to make sure we capture it. 
all of this has to be an honest discussion. Yeah. Um, but um, I think you've got to call it how it is. Um, and I don't think uh, people really appreciate the partisan politics at that stage, at that time. Uh, so for the future then, if you had to say, like, what are those three things that you want people to take away from your experience in terms of recovery, the experience of what you went through, you had to distill it down to three things. You know, what would those things, what do you want people to leave this episode going, you know what, we can make a difference here or we can actually affect that. What do you want people to hear out of your learning? Uh, next time, get the hell out of the way. Yeah. Don't don't think you can take this on. You can't. So the very nature of that Black Summer Fire um, you know, let's think about it. The only thing that stopped it was the ocean. Mm. Every containment line got busted. Um, of course, there's not enough fire trucks. I mean, most villages have at best two, three trucks. Yeah. Um, making sure we've got incredibly important, safe places for people to go and then be supported potentially for a couple of weeks afterwards. I think mm. you've got to think logically through that. Um, and thirdly, um, people are right to expect change. You know, the policy settings and the approach and the attitude that we take towards these disasters, people want change out of this and they're right to expect it. So because we've had such a large um, amount of bushland burnt, it's all going to grow back at pretty much the same rate. Our techniques in terms of managing that hazard into the future is going to be very different because the growth come back at the same time. So patchwork burning isn't necessarily going to work. You can't sort of have you know, climate change in the background and think that, you know, you have to have, you know, have a many years cycle in terms of managing that bushland. And we can't just sort of have it through the prism of, oh, yeah, you know, the National Parks and Wildlife Service, that's rubbish. Like mm. what I saw in terms of council reserves and the way that which Crown Land Reserves, council reserves, um, you know, even state forest land, the, the way that some of that country burnt, I get, even in Malua Bay, like there's council reserves, which I know the community would get in and manage, Hmm. But they've been told, no, 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 you can't do that. Well, you know, we lost homes because, you know, there was there was too much vegetation growth right near properties. Hmm. So we can't just sort of look at four land managers in New South Wales and think, oh, yeah, that's going to continue to serve us well when these types of events happen. It won't. So, yeah, look, I think there's, there's some key things in terms of change. So just to summarise that point... Um, uh, you know, people changing their attitude and getting out of the way of these things. Secondly, uh, making sure that we've got safe places which is equipped to cater for thousands of people, not hundreds. Mm. And thirdly, um, just making sure that there is appropriate change in terms of our overall public policy. And I think that's part of the discussion. Actually, we had a really interesting guest on um, a couple episodes back, Alain Kelman, who's a, a, a really prominent researcher in this space, one of the leading researchers, and talking about disasters are a choice. And I think that's what you're summing up there is that we need to make the right choices beforehand to make sure we can get through these things. So, you know, maybe we need to rethink around where we're developing or where we're putting people or where we're putting vulnerable individuals and have this bigger conversation around risk so that when we go into the future, you know, we're thinking about these things, we're planning for things rather than, you know, now where we are now trying to kind of, you know, we're trying to catch up to ourselves. Yeah, I think that's right. Hmm. Um, absolutely. One final question to to cap this off, what does the community look like today in, in Batemans Bay in the south coast and, and what's next for Andrew Constance? <laughs> um, 
Uh, second part of the question, uh, who knows? <laughs> first part, um, look, I, you know, it's a, it's a better place. Um, you know, um, and that's because um, people were called on in a way that they'd never experienced in their lives before and they, they found within themselves a strength which they didn't think they had. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, out of it, um, just a, an incredible kindness um, and, um, you know, people are going out of their way to, to help each other. So that, um, you know... The, uh, you know, there, there is no doubt the way in which uh, you see that love and kindness every day. It's it's pretty awesome, and that'll that'll continue. So, I think that's the the key point. Is, is that uh, people were unified in that sort of survival period, but they're certainly unified and moving forward. Yeah, well, we certainly hope that positive change continues and that uh, people continue to help each other and, and the community becomes more resilient and better prepared for disasters in the future. We've really enjoyed chatting with you today, Minister, and wishing you and the community all the best for the continued recovery from those bushfires. We've shared a couple of pictures. You can check those out on our website at memyselfdisaster.com. Andrew Constance, thanks for joining us on Me, Myself and Disaster. Mate, I'll make sure you get that satellite image because it's a cracker. Like, it's unbelievable. That'd be good. All right. Thanks, Hapes. Thanks for having us. Cheers. That's all we have time for on today's show. Join us again next time as we talk to more guests from across the world about their experiences during disasters. We'll catch you then. Thanks for listening to Me, Myself and Disaster. Subscribe today at memyselfdisaster.com. Learn more about disasters and follow our blog at disasterbros.com.